0: Good morning. I am uh, excited for the opportunity to share God's Word with you this morning. Um, We will be looking at Ecclesiastes chapter 6. If you don't know where Ecclesiastes is, if you open your Bible to the middle, that's Psalms, then Proverbs, then Ecclesiastes. And we'll be in chapter 6, starting in verse 10, and we'll be going through chapter 7, verse 14. If you're using the blue Bibles that are here in the seat back in front of you, Ecclesiastes 6 is on page 320. So, what comes to your mind when I say these words? Adversity, hardship, trials. Maybe you're thinking about difficulties that you've faced in the past. Maybe some hardship you're experiencing right now. Or maybe you're thinking about somebody else and what they're going through. Maybe all of the above. Jesus told his disciples and us, you will have suffering in this world. It's the way it is. We can all think back to either late in 2019 or early 2020 when we first heard of something called COVID-19. And we can all give testimony to some sort of adversity that that's brought. In our lives it's touched us adversity of some kind is and usually some level of prosperity is ordinary for a human life but the problem is we never know from day to day which it will be a man named Horatio Spafford is certainly an, a dramatic example of this he was a lawyer he was senior partner in a large law firm He was a successful real estate developer in Chicago. He and his wife, Anna, had five children, one boy and four girls. They were Christians, well-known in Chicago to live out the faith that they professed and for their generosity. Horatio was a lay elder at his church. By any way you slice it, uh, prosperity, good life, blessed life. Well, in 1870... The Spafford's son died of scarlet fever. A year later, the great fire of Chicago annihilated most of the city, wiping out much of the Spafford's wealth. Two years after the fire, the family planned a trip to England. Business affairs kept Spafford from joining his family as they sailed for England. He planned to join them later. While crossing the Atlantic, their ship was struck by another vessel and sank, killing 226 people, including all four of the Spafford's daughters. Adversity out of nowhere. I share this story with you not so you'll say to yourself, wow, my trials are nothing compared to that family. I guess I should just suck it up. No, that's not the point. Or if you're in a different situation, you might be thinking, wow, How is it fair that I've never had to face that kind of adversity? That's not the point either. The point is, all of us, either we have or we're going to, face adversity. And all of us tend to struggle with how to handle it well. If we're honest with ourselves, our first response to adversity is usually not great. So... How should we respond when things go wrong? For that matter, how should we respond when things go well? These are the topics that the author of Ecclesiastes, whom we've been calling the preacher, turns to in this passage. He begins his instruction for us about adversity and prosperity by reminding us of the reality of the situation we live in here under the sun. Let's read. Ecclesiastes 6, 10, verses 10 and 11 together. He says there, whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. What is the advantage to man? The idea of something being named carries with it the idea, it means that it has been set. Um, And by the one naming it, and he has established authority over it. So, in Genesis 1, we see God naming the earth, naming the sky, the seas. Not only speaking them into existence, but defining them and establishing his authority over the way they are. In Genesis 2, we see Adam naming the creatures that God had created, defining them, and establishing his authority over them as God's agent on earth. But here, in Ecclesiastes, he means more by what is named than just what exists. He also means all that happens has been named. This means that whatever's happened and whatever's going to happen is set. The second thing the preacher reminds us of is that it's already known what man is, And what is man? He's mortal. He's weak. He's limited. His life is a vapor. How could a creature such as this dispute with one stronger than him, God? The word dispute carries the idea of bringing a lawsuit against someone. Job 9, in Job 9, Job rightly says of God, For he is not a man as I am, that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together? He's right. Because that's true, the more words, the more vanity. Debating God about the way things are is pointless. We can't change what God has ordained to be, good times or bad. And so we're in no position to argue with him about it. the the reality of the predicament that man finds himself in leads the preacher to two questions, which are the, the core of what he's going to be speaking about in the rest of this passage. We find those in verse 12. Look at verse 12. He says, For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? So the core of the two questions is, What is good for us? And what will happen after us? The preacher addresses these questions in the rest of this passage. The answer to the first question, what is good for us, he addresses in the form of Proverbs in verses 1 through 12. Now, Proverbs are short, pithy, memorable nuggets of wisdom. We have a whole book of the Bible that's just Proverbs. And here... He uses this genre of literature to address that problem, address that issue. What's good for us? These Proverbs we could consider better than Proverbs. This section uses the word good or better, the Hebrew word for good or better, which is actually the same word. This this passage, verse 12, 1 to 12, uses that nine times. Closer to the Hebrew might be the word gooder. But we don't have that word. So we use better than. So these Proverbs are saying, this thing is better than this thing. It's not saying, this thing is good and this thing is bad. It's saying relatively. This is good. This is more good. Gooder. This is good. These Proverbs intentionally reflect The poem we saw in chapter 3, if you'll remember, about time. There the preacher observed that there's a time for everything. Here, he's telling us that some of those things are better for us than others. So, reality under the sun in this fallen world includes good and bad experiences. These proverbs are meant as advice to help us navigate that. The first point he makes in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 7 is that living in light of one's death is better than ignoring one's mortality, a happy thought. Let's read verses 1 through 4 together. He says, a good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death better than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. So in chapter 3, he observed that there was a, a time to die and a time to be born, a time to mourn and a time to dance, time for sorrow and a time for laughter. The same things that we see here. Only here, he says that some of those things are more good for us than others. Specifically, the things that focus us on death. What a happy thought. He says the day of death is better than the day of birth. Funerals are better than parties. Sorrow is better than laughter. You'll probably notice that the things that he says are better are the opposite of the things that you think are good normally. We love births. We love feasting. We love laughter and parties. We associate those things with prosperity, good days, even God's blessing. And these things are good. He's not saying they're not. This is good, this is gooder. We usually think of things like our own death and funerals and sorrow and mourning as bad things, bad days, adversity, things we try to avoid at all costs. But the preacher says here, those things are actually good for us. In fact, he says they're better than the things that we think are good. Why would that be? Well, the first reason he tells us is because all of us are going to die. If you look around the room, there's two things you have in common with everyone in the room. You were all born, and we're all going to die. Yay! (laughs) (laughs) The preacher says that we should lay that fact to heart. We should take it to heart and live as we live. In other words we should keep our own mortality in mind and live accordingly. What does that mean? Well, we tend to live as if we're not going to die. Or we just tend to not think about it at all, especially our own deaths. No one likes to think about death. Really, we don't like to think about our own death. What does it mean to live accordingly with my impending death in mind? Well, Hebrews 9.27 tells us it is appointed for man once to die, and then comes judgment. Laying our own death to heart reminds us to live wisely, as if what Hebrews 9.27 were actually true, which it is, by the way. This focus on mortality helps us to reorient our lives towards pleasing the God to whom we will give an account instead of towards pleasing myself. It just has a way of re-entering our mind that way. The preacher also says that sadness of face, by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. Glad is the same word for good again. So by a sad face, my soul is made good. It's better. It's more good for me for my soul to ponder death, particularly my own death, and to grieve than it is for me to distract myself with fun and entertainment and laughing. As good as those things are, it's better for me to do the other. So living in light of our own death helps us focus on what really matters, our character and our reputation. Look back at verse 1 with me. An odd thing, he says. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death better than the day of birth. A good name. What does he mean by that? I think Clovis and Cletus are good names. But that's not what he means here. I'm going to keep recommending those names by the way to our expectant parents, and sooner or later somebody's going to take me up on it. No, by good name here he means... Uh, A good reputation is better than fine oil. And fine oil in his day was a very expensive thing. It parallels what Proverbs 22.1 says, which is a good name is better than great riches or better than silver or gold. Okay, great. A good reputation is better than wealth. I get that. But what does that have to do with the day of my death being better than the day of my birth? Well, when a person is born, we give them a name. Cletus, perhaps. But little Cletus has only the potential for a good reputation at the day of his birth. Only at the end of his life, on the day of his death, when he can no longer contribute to his reputation, is it fixed? Is it set? On the day of your death which I hope won't be for a while. What will you be known to have lived for? What will your reputation be? Living in light of our mortality helps us to think about that. Death, funeral, sorrow, grieving, they're meant as times to reflect on those kind of things, those kind of questions. Things you don't normally think about or reflect on when you're at a birthday party. For those of us who are Christians, if you've been redeemed by Jesus, the goal of your reputation, of our reputation, and our character should be that of the Apostle Paul. He said in Philippians 1, that for him, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Is that true of your reputation? Is that true of your character? Does it reflect that truth, that that's what you live for? Would you be known for that if you died today? Would you even want to be known for that today? If you're in Christ, then your life belongs to Christ now. In fact, Colossians tells us He is your life. So now, if you're in Christ, your reputation is completely bound up with His. And it should reflect that. This should be the goal of our our reputation, to live for Christ, to glorify Him with our lives. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, you're not living a life with God, you also have a reputation. Whatever good reputation you're attempting to build on, hoping to build for yourself apart from God, it's questionable. Because Ecclesiastes has already told us that everything in this world that you might build your character and your reputation on is vanity because it can't last into eternity. Without God to infuse your life with eternal meaning, you're just chasing the wind. This morning, through the words of Ecclesiastes, God may be calling you to live a life that has eternal meaning the life that humans were actually created for, which is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That life is possible for you if you'll trust Christ and follow Him as your Lord. If you want to know more about what that means, uh, talk to me or almost anyone in the room. We'd love to tell you more about what it means to follow Jesus. So, life under the sun is short, death is certain, Live with the end in mind. In verses 5 through 10, he moves on to another comparison, another better than section. He says, Wisdom is better than folly. Look at it with me, verses 5 through 10. It's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Do you see the better thans in this passage? The rebuke of a wise man is better than the song of a fool. The end of a thing is better than the beginning. A patient spirit is better than a proud spirit. Being content with the present is better than longing for the past. The preacher is telling us that wisdom has advantage over not having wisdom. It's a tool that can help us Find the good in both days of prosperity and days of adversity. First thing he tells us is that being rebuked by a wise man is better than the song of a fool. He compares the laughter of fools to the sound of thorns crackling under a pot. They're loud, they're flashy, maybe even entertaining, but it's short-lived, doesn't give off much heat or much warmth, not, no real, real lasting value. He's not saying that songs are bad. He's saying that hearing and listening to a rebuke is better. If you're like me, being rebuked is not something that you necessarily enjoy. <laughs> we would, most of us, put, definitely put it in the bad day bucket, the day when we get rebu- rebuked. Yet, he says, to humbly receive it is, is wise. Think about Uh, Think of the Apostle Paul, or excuse me, the Apostle Peter. How many times do we see him being rebuked in the New Testament? Jesus rebuked him, Paul rebuked him. Each time, though, he was rebuked, he listened, he humbly received it, he learned from it, and he grew. Do you have someone right now in your life that you consider wise, that you could hear and actually accept a rebuke from someone you know cares about you so much that they'll tell you when you're off track if not you should find a godly brother or sister that you can count on and commit yourself in advance to receiving what they might say to you if they rebuke you if you're a member of church on mill One of the reasons that God has you here is that that person is probably in the room, someone who can help you stay on track as you follow Jesus, someone who can wisely rebuke you. And he has you here so that you can be that person for somebody else, to use the wisdom that God gives you to rebuke me when I'm out of line and we help each other follow Jesus. Proverbs 12, 1 says... Whoever loves discipline, loves knowledge. But he who hates reproof is stupid. Ouch. Those are strong words. So the proverb we find in verses 5 and 6 is about listening to the wise, receiving wisdom from the wise. Life under the sun for you is just going to be better if you do that. The preacher also recommends in this passage... Uh, patience as a wise course. If you'll notice in verses 7 through 10, they all really revolve around a central idea, which is you should have a patient spirit. Notice in verse 8 that he says, the opposite of patience is pride. Why is that? Well, if you look at all those expressions of impatience that he describes in those verses, all of them can be traced back to a sinful heart that says, the way I think things should be is right. I am and should be master of my life and destiny. That's pride. So in verse 7, he notes that even a wise man can be tempted to impatience with the, thing, with the way things are so that he takes shortcuts, even sinful ones like oppression and bribes, that in the end render him a fool. Waiting to see the end of a thing is the wise choice pointed out in verse 8. We all have been part of something that started off good and didn't end so well, or something that seems shaky at first, but over time we see that God was working in it. The Arizona Diamondbacks began the season in April with high hopes and a lot of optimism. Not so much in the end. Patience is just wise. Waiting and seeing what God is doing. In verse 9, he says that a quick temper is the expression of impatience. I have found, maybe you're different, but I have found that many times my anger or frustration is simply my impatience with the fact that I'm not getting what I want. You may not be like that, but I am. So, a quick temper often equals impatience. Looking to the past, as as Austin pointed out to us, and saying things like, man, life was so much better before the pandemic. I wish we could go back to the way things were. He's telling us that's not wise because it's a form of impatience with the present. It's telling God, I don't like what you're doing. I don't think you really know what you're doing. The way it was seems better to me. Let's go back to that. As if God were not the one who ordained what is. So it's not wise. He's saying, that question doesn't come from wisdom when you ask it. Listening humbly and waiting patiently are tools that can help us find the good in adversity. In verses 11 and 12 of chapter 7, he observes that wisdom is a valuable asset. Look at what he says in those two verses. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves life, the life of him who has it. So, money with wisdom is better than money without wisdom. Duh. (laughs) If someone receives an inheritance, that's a good day. That's prosperity. But it's even better if he has wisdom to know what to do with it. Money, he tells us, can be very helpful. It's protection. How is money a protection? Well, if, if the transmission fails on your car and you have set some money aside in advance for emergencies, that's helpful. That's protection. Right? He's saying wisdom is like that. Having wisdom will be protection for you when the day of adversity hits, just like money. But, he says, wisdom is better because it preserves life. And we learned last week from Ecclesiastes, the last passage in Ecclesiastes, that money can't do that. Well, in an attempt to answer the question, what is good for us, the preacher has given us some practical advice about things that are better for us than other things. You might notice, however, that anyone, even people who don't know God, or even people who don't believe there is a God, could follow this advice and their life would be better. I think that's true. What we've come to read so far could be described as under the sun wisdom. Anyone can live in light of their own death, anyone can listen to the wise, anyone can be patient and it would be to their benefit. Doing so would probably help almost anyone see the good, the relative good, in adversity. Even if the good and the bad that happened were just random chance. But the preacher knows, as do we, that's not the reality we live in. Remember what he said back in verse 10 of chapter 6? All that happens has been named. By who? By God. God does exist, and He is sovereign over all that is. Which leads the preacher to his conclusion on this whole matter. We find that in verses 13 and 14. Look at that with me. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what He has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider... God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. The Hebrew word for consider here is the same word sometimes translated elsewhere as look or behold. After all his this is better than that advice, the preacher says, okay now, let's look at your life again. At your situation, at your adversity. Let's look at that diagnosis, that financial difficulty, that troubled relationship, that loss that you've suffered, that hurt, that disappointment. Behold the work of God. Who can make straight what He has made crooked? We tend to think that if God loves me, He's going to make my life straight and easy. And we tend, to think, we tend to see the problems in our life as detours from the good plan that God surely must have for me. And so we want to get through those as quickly as possible so we can get back on course with the good stuff. The problem is the crooked parts of my life are the plan. At least part of it. Why is this important for us to get? So that we can see, we can look for the God that, we can look for the good that God wants us to find when adversity comes. The preacher says in verse 12 that both good days of prosperity and bad days of adversity are for a specific purpose. Do you see what it is in that last verse? He says, these things come so that man may not find out what will be after him. In answer to the question of chapter 6, verse 12, who can tell what will come after a man? The preacher says, God, get this, God has intentionally made life unpredictable and erratic, good and bad coming seemingly at random, so that we won't know what's coming next. The answer to the question from 6.12 is, you're not supposed to know what comes next. Why in the world would God want it to be that way? So that Mike will choose to walk by faith in Him. The only one who knows what's good for me, the only one who knows what's coming next. Why would I live my life looking to anyone else than Him if that's true? That's what He wants me. That's why He made it this way. So, we come away from from this passage with this overall advice. Because God is sovereign, rejoice in prosperity and look for His good in adversity. We can rejoice when prosperity comes because we know it's a gift from Him. And we can thank Him and rejoice in it. And then we can look for the good in adversity not only because he's sovereign but because he's good. This godly wisdom is useful for us in this fallen sinful world, no doubt. But things have changed a little bit since he wrote this. Not the situation we're in, we're still faced with adversity and prosperity and we still are powerless to do anything about it. But what's different? Well, Jesus has come, and he changes everything. Changes the whole game. Now we can look back on the truths of Ecclesiastes in light of his life, death, and resurrection. Now when we look and say the day of our death is better, if we're in Christ, it's better for a whole different reason. Let me give you an example. Ecclesiastes 3 says there's a time for mourning. Plain and simple. Chapter 7 tells us more than that, mourning is better for us. But for those who have been redeemed who are in Christ, Jesus tells us in Matthew 5, blessed are those who mourn. For they shall be comforted. The truth in Ecclesiastes remains, but it's been Amplified to a new truth. You see, when we put our hope in Christ, His Holy Spirit comes into us, not only to comfort and guide, but to work to transform us into the image of Christ, to make us Christ-like. Look at what Romans eight twenty eight says. And we know, we know that those who love God For those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Notice he says, for those who are called according to his purpose. Paul is talking about those who have been redeemed in Christ. It's those who are Christ followers, who can be certain, Paul says, that God is working all things together for good. What is the good he's working for? our sanctification. As Christians, we look for the good in adversity, but more than that, we are confident that God is using every good thing and every trial in our life to give us opportunity to trust Him more, to be obedient as He transforms us from the inside out into what we are called to be. And so, what James writes in James chapter 1 is in agreement with Ecclesiastes and at the same time magnifies the truth in Christ. Listen to what James says Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete. Lacking nothing. That is the goal of our life in Christ. He is, make, he is perfecting us in Christ. Through everything that happens. Let's return to Horatio Spafford for a moment. If you remember, we talked about him at the beginning. I didn't tell you earlier how he responded to his adversity. When he received word that his wife, Anna, was the sole survivor of that disaster at sea, he sailed immediately to join her in England on his voyage across the Atlantic, as he looked out over the same stretch of ocean where his daughters drowned, he wrote the words to a poem, which would later become the hymn we sang earlier, It Is Well With My Soul. Let's listen again to his words. When peace, like a river, attendeth my, soul, my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll. He, he knew what that was. Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. So how did Horatio Spafford respond to adversity? He did exactly what the preacher recommends. He considered the work of God. He looked for the good in tragedy. But much more than that, because his life was hidden in Christ, he knew that it was well with his soul because he had been rescued from sin and death by God's grace through faith in Christ. He knew that death no longer has victory for those of us who are in Christ. Friend, if you are united with Christ, you too should have that same confidence that god is working to complete what he's begun in you his holy spirit is at work whatever comes whatever your lot if you're here today and you don't have assurance that you are in christ you can if you will put your trust in him he will change your life give you a new kind of peace that you can't find anywhere else and he'll give you the power by the Holy Spirit, to overcome whatever happens. Because God is sovereign, rejoice in prosperity and look for His good in adversity. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your words to us through Ecclesiastes. Thank You for the wise counsel that He gives. And we thank You, Lord, for Jesus Christ and the way we see things now in him that are even more wonderful than the truth that was known. The mystery of Christ has been revealed, and it amplifies all that we read in scripture. Father, help us to walk wisely. Help us to to live in light of our own death, to be patient, to listen to the wise. And Lord, help us, when adversity comes, to consider your work. Help us to find the good in adversity. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.
1: Amen. Would you join me in thanking Mike for preaching today? Appreciate your work, brother, and all the wisdom that you shared from an important passage. So, thank you very much, brother. Hope you've been encouraged this morning as we've uh, sung and uh, prayed and uh, considered what God has to say in His Word. It's been great to uh, worship with you today. We hope what you've uh, begun the week doing this week wouldn't stop when we leave the doors in a few minutes, but that our gathering this morning would set the tone for a week full of thinking about the Lord and ministering to those He brings you in contact with. Last week I mentioned briefly that we were working on getting the videos of uh, Dr. Uh, Don Whitney's messages from the conference up, and those uh, are now up on YouTube. So, this is the only time I'll ever tell you this. If you want to pull out your phone and uh, subscribe to Church on Mill's YouTube channel, then you'll find them um, there as a group, and would commend especially that Friday night to you from uh, two weeks.